You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Free City Church. I hope you're somewhat happy to actually put my face uh, to my voice. I'm uh, somewhat disappointed uh, to be preaching actually in pants and not sweats or shorts. But if you don't know, my name is Casey and I'm one of your pastors and I hope that this is finding you in a good place. This is new for us. We're, we're beginning uh, to provide video preaching uh, to aid our step back into smaller Sunday host homes w- with the goal of stepping toward, uh, stepping toward community, reestablishing a liturgical rhythm of worship, and unifying under preaching. You know, this step, like some of you guys, aren't quite there yet. Some will be following in the weeks to come, and some just aren't quite ready for this step. And you need to know that we have lots of patience, humility, and grace for you. But but there's also others who are ready for a much, much bigger step toward community. And we ask for patience and humility from you. These words and ideas, patience, humility, and grace are all over this text. They're instructing the church on how do we find unity. The words that add to it are also unity and gentleness and bearing with one another in love. This is what is supposed to characterize the church of Jesus. This is the kind of community that Jesus died to make for us, a new kind of humanity. And yet we know that it's so hard sometimes to reflect this. Our scripture reading is found in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. It says, I, therefore a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling, to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led the host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes, rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him 
who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint which with it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. This text is often broken up into at least three different parts, but taking it as a whole kind of shows something very, very profound for us. It tells us that even though we have life, the life of the triune God in us, all of the triune God, all of that life is in us, we still persist in spiritual immaturity until we come together in unity and speak the truth in love. I, I want to organize this text just on these three ideas. We're going to look first in verses 1 through 6 at this triune life of God. Every part of the Trinitarian God is mentioned. And then the second thing, we're going to focus on Christian immaturity, where we find ourselves. We'll see that in verses 11 through 14. And then finally, we're going to look at what changes us, speaking the truth in love. Verses 15 through 16. So, so let's get started. First, the triune love, uh, the triune life of God. Like it has to be poured into us. And that is what makes us a Christian. It is nothing less than the entire Trinity pouring into our lives, causing us to grow. It takes all of God to make us into a Christian. Like people often think what makes Christians is just us being nicer people or more disciplined kind of person, or maybe more generous. And you know, someone who goes to church at least three times a month, and someone who ties to the church, and someone who is nicer, or maybe more generous, and they show up, or maybe they're just more disciplined, and we love all of those things. Those are things we're trying to grow in. But those things are not what makes us a Christian. It's not something that we do. A Christian is not a nice person. A Christian is a new person. It doesn't, it's not that we just put niceness on. We have to have newness from within. A Christian is a dead person who is now alive to God. And look at some of these phrases in verse 1 through 6 with me. And like the first one, it's saying a Christian is called. And so in verses 1 through 3, it talks about calling. And it's a calling that we respond to. It's not a status that we earn through self-improvement. Look at verse 1. It says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you. That you right there is the church. Paul is talking, he's instructing the church, and he's saying, I urge you Christians to realize about this calling. He goes on to tell them that he wants them to look a certain way because of something that has already happened to them. So I, therefore, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We are told that Christians receive a calling that makes us a Christian. Like, and, and then we do have to apply effort to walk in that calling. He describes it in verses 2 through 3. Like he describes how we should look, what that should look like. In verses 2 it says, With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace. Like We'll talk more about this toward the end in just a minute. But, but look at that list. 
humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain unity, a bond of peace. Mastering those things don't make you a Christian. This says there is a call, and when you respond to it, something happens in you, but then you can start to put these things on. This says that the call itself is worthy enough for our lives to reflect this, for us to put effort toward one another, because it says something about our Lord, that we should apply this type of gentleness and patience, bearing, eager to maintain unity, this bond of peace. You know, even thinking about this season, like, it's been challenging. Like, this season has been challenging to to, to lead in. Like, I I never took, like, church in a pandemic 101 in in seminary. It, It wasn't offered. It's been challenging to think through different things. And it would always be challenging, even if we all thought the exact same way about it, but we don't. Like, like when you look across the board of social media, like you see people who are on this like serious pandemic side and people who are on some sort of plandemic side. And when we look across the breadth of our church, we have people all somewhere in the middle. And this text tells us how to treat one another. Your brothers and sisters, they need gentleness and humility and patience. They need you. I need you. Jesus wants us to treat one another that is worthy of the call. Like this speaks to us. You know, I mean, right now we have several city groups who have broken up into smaller Sunday morning host homes. You know, right now that's going on. But like... There are some city groups that haven't stepped toward that just yet. Like they'll be stepping toward that in the following weeks. And like right now, we need people to think through this, to apply these kinds of words, to apply words like humility, words like gentleness and patience to one another. A a Christian is not a Christian because they earn it with patience, humility, or gentleness. This says a Christian is a Christian because of a call from God that has changed something profoundly in their nature. But the call is worthy. It's worthy for us to extend this to one another. So the first thing that we see of what does this triune life of God do in us? First, it comes in a call. The second thing that we see, it says a Christian needs the life of God poured in them. That is what makes a Christian a Christian. Look at verse four. It says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Like, like the first thing, there are a lot of ones. Like, and the first one talks to a certain type of unity. Like the ones emphasize the unity we need in the body of Christ. It says there is one body, one hope, one faith, one baptism. Like I did take this seminary class. A lot of ones, it means a lot of unity, that we need to see a one direction. But then it has these other ones. Like we see these ones that say there is also one spirit. Verse 4, that is the Holy Spirit. It says there is one Lord. Verse 5, that is Jesus. There is one God and Father. That is God the Father. Right here we see what it takes to pull off 
salvation in your soul. It takes God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Nothing less than the life of the Trinitarian God of the universe being poured into your life can make you a Christian. Nothing less. You have to have this inside of you. It says this is a call that you have to respond to. If you have it, does this manner of life reflect the Trinitarian God of the universe in your humility and patience? And so the first, a Christian needs the gospel call. Second, the life of God has to come in them. And then in verse 15, we jump to the end. I just want to look at this. It says, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. This says a Christian needs to be connected to Jesus. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm no doctor. I'm, I'm not a doctor, but everyone has to have a head to be alive. When I was doing student ministry in Weatherford, Oklahoma, there was a man. His name was Dan Zosky. He was one of the toughest men I've ever known. Dan, in his early years, had his right hand crushed and lost his right hand, but it didn't stop him. Like he didn't have a hand, but it didn't stop his life and it didn't stop him. He owned a tree trimming business and he manhandled a, a chainsaw with his less dominant hand and ran the whole business. You can live without a hand, but you can't live without a head. It, it, you know, even when I was in third grade at Roosevelt Elementary School, we all gathered in the gym and we were all sitting there not knowing what the presentation was going to be about. We were sitting crisscross applesauce just waiting all of a sudden, a man named John Foppy walks in. John Foppy was born without arms. He walks in, and we're all kind of astonished because we didn't expect this. He walks over. He sits down in a chair. He picks up a can of Coke with his foot, and he opens it up with his toes, and he takes a drink holding the can with his foot, and then he says, I know, I know. No food or drink in the gym. And we lost our minds. You can be born without arms and you can live, but you have to have a head. You can live without a hand, you can live without arms, but you have to have a head to live. If you are connected to Jesus, you are a Christian and the power of the Trinitarian God is in you. Animating you. Is that worthy of us to apply a little humility and patience and long-suffering for one another? This text, it says a Christian is a new creation with a life of God Almighty in their being. And like you might ask this, what does all that power produce? All the power of God of the universe that spoke everything into existence. All the power that Jesus walked with relying upon the Holy Spirit. All the power that raised Jesus from the dead that crushed sin, Satan, and death. What does that do in the life of a Christian? When that enters in, it still leaves us in the second word. It still leaves us in spiritual immaturity. Like we naturally persist in spiritual immaturity, even when all of that has come to us. Look at verse 11. It says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers 
to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by the craftiness in deceitful schemes. Like this speaks to how a Christian starts with all the power of the Trinitary God has to enter in and quake in the soul to make us alive again. It also speaks to where we start. All of that produces a spiritual baby. Like, look, look back. Like, if you look at this, um, look, and, you know, you might actually even think, like, gosh, isn't that, we could have maturity in other ways. Isn't that a little extreme? But look at verse 14. Like, in verse 14, Paul indicates that this is true of him. Like, it says in verse 14, so that we, that means it includes him, so that we may no longer be children. Paul says that he has some of the childrenness, the childness inside of him, that it sometimes still comes out. And if Paul is in the children category, if he is at the kid's table, if any part of him is there, I'm not going out on a limb too far to say that probably exists still in you and me, some spiritual immaturity. And the text it's going to lead us to what that looks like. like. Like, look at verse 14. In verse 14, it says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about every wind of doctrine by human coming or craftiness in deceitful schemes. Like, that says spiritual immaturity means a lack of discernment. Like every, carried about every wind of doctrine by human coming. Like that means that there still persists in us a sense that we need to grow, that we can distinguish between what is true and what is not true, between what is right and what is wrong. And we see this, we see this in kids. Like, do you know what teaches a kid not to put a finger in a power outlet? Discernment. And usually at least one good shock. Do you know what teaches a kid that you can eat food, but you shouldn't have chemicals? Discernment. And until they have that, you need locks on cabinet doors. Do you know what teaches a kid that you can't just eat cookie dough for dinner? Discernment. And one puking experience after you sneak it out of the refrigerator. Like we become a Christian, but we still lack discernment. And that lack of discernment has an effect. This text says it makes us unstable. See, spiritual immaturity can exist in a lack of discernment. Spiritual immaturity exists in a lack of stability. Verse 14, the beginning of that, where it says, tossed to and fro by the waves. Like something, when the waves toss, it's not stable enough to handle what's being thrown at it. We still get tossed. Like, we still get tossed. Circumstances still hurt and they move us. Relationships still are affected and when they're lost, it moves us. It still tosses us. God is trying to produce a stability in us. That doesn't mean we're not moved. It doesn't mean that we don't hurt. It means that there's an ability to stand. And when we first start walking, there's a lot of instability. There's a lot of ups and downs 
And Satan loves to take the opportunity to say things like, man, if someone else had been a Christian as long as you, then surely they still wouldn't mess up like you do. Or, or they wouldn't think like that. Or they'd be more generous. Or, or they'd be more forgiving. Or they wouldn't let those things run in their mind over and over, replaying the situation. But we can look to the physical world to help us see this. I mean, when babies are born, instability is all over them. They can't hold their heads upright. I mean, they're shaking all around. Their eyes don't even look at the same direction all the time. And when you get so excited when they finally start to walk, but then it changes everything because you have to put gates on everything because at any moment they could just fall in any direction and just die. They're marked by instability. There's spiritual instability too. Sometimes spiritual instability looks like this. I'm reading the scriptures or I'm hearing a sermon or a friend convicts me of something and I feel the conviction of God upon my life, but I walk away and I don't change anything. Unstable. The winds toss to and fro. I, I, I injure someone I care about. I hurt them. I express selfishness. And I have the moment of I need to repent. I need to restore this relationship but I walk away. The circumstances of that environment are too dangerous, unstable. Spiritual immaturity, it lacks stability. And God, in His wisdom, which sometimes seems crazy, He gave the church to start to change that. We look back at verse 11. You know, what we see in verses... Um, 8 through 10, and we skipped it. We'll come back to it just a little bit. But what we see in verses 8 to 10 is uh, we see here Paul is loosely quoting Deuteronomy 30, verses 11 through 14. Basically, it says that Jesus came down in the incarnation, and he went even further down into death upon the cross. But then he rose to life, but then he rose even more in the resurrection, and then he rose even more into the ascension to heaven. And as he ascended with victory over sin, Satan, and death, as he ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit with spiritual gifts for the church. And he's given all believers that now are animated by the life of God in them, even in their immaturity, he's given all spiritual gifts for the building up of the church. And so we, we see some of these. It says, and he gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers <clears throat> to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up uh, the body of Christ. When it says apostles and prophets, he gave us those to give us scripture that we could know the heart of God. When it says that he gave evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, he gave those kind of gifts to the church that we could explain the scriptures, that we could walk in them, that we'd have more clarity of how to work in this faith and in this life. But then it says to all of the saints, that includes all of us who still are ravaged with immaturity, to all of the saints are to work in the ministry to build up the church. And this process is messy. It's a messy process. But it says, through this, we will grow into unity. And then it says a strange thing. It says, a mature togetherness. You know, actually, like look at verse 13. It says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, 
to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In essence, it says we start off as disconnected spiritual babies, but he's maturing us into one mature man. He's bringing that kind of unity. Christians, we start off lacking discernment and stability. But there's one thing that we don't, we don't lack at all when we start off. We don't lack any amount of self-centeredness. A marker of spiritual immaturity is self-centeredness. If you look back in verses 2 and 3, you see these words again, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, eager to maintain unity and a bond of peace. All of those things combat something. Self-centeredness. Like, have you ever noticed like, like babies, they, they, don't, they don't offer mom a night off. Have you ever noticed they don't consider, like, mom, have you eaten yet? Or have you ever noticed, have you ever had this experience? A kid sneaks into bed and to wake you up, they pry open an eye. It is astonishing what you think about in that moment. Like, we start off gripped by self-centeredness. We start off full of it. And it's seen in when I'm offended or it's seen in moving from this friend group to that friend group or this city group to that city group or this church to that church. It's seen that when it doesn't fit me anymore, I'll just move on. See, self-centered is, is often offended and really sorry. Self-centeredness is very particular in, in demands of how my needs can be met, of what my desires are but it's very vague in how I can help. We all start off this. So, you know, this says that we, we lack discernment and stability, but we're full of self-centers. And the question would be, how steady are you in, in your faith? Does every argument sway you? Or every bad circumstance, does it cause you to question God's goodness or His power or His knowledge of you? How quick are you to defend yourself? Is it always someone else's fault? Or is it always the circumstances that caused it? Or does no one really just understand? See, the power of God in the resurrection of Jesus, as Jesus ascended, He gave us these gifts and nothing less than the Trinitarian God animating your soul, raising you to new life, that you can be in relationship with Him. Nothing less than that will save you. But we start off in this spiritual immaturity, and then the text tells us how we can change. And it, se it seems pretty messy to me. It seems actually pretty risky to me. At times, I would really doubt that it's a good idea. But the text tells us this in verse 15. Rather... Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, making the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love. That means we can't mature in isolation. 
That that means that spiritual maturity will not come from just a a podcast and and a cup of coffee. We need the people of God to witness our lives and to press against it. Like you can grow in knowledge, and knowledge is a part of growing, but I contend it is a smaller part of growing. You don't need more information. What you need is the people of God to come around you, to be patient with you and love you, but to also press upon you. How this happens, I mean, it comes when you have to repent to someone after you offended them. Or or when someone steps on your toes or offends you or disappoints you and you decide to go with long-suffering and patience. This is how we grow in our faith. This is how a person grows. You, You become forgiving by being around people who need to be forgiven. Like for simplicity, like it just says this, that we need to speak in love. But the problem is that truth and love must be together to accomplish this. Every one of us will lean more in one way. We'll either be more toward a loving person or we'll be more toward a truthful person. And self-centeredness will destroy that in the lean. And so all of us have to have a pull to another way. And so loving people, a, a, a love people will struggle to be truthful out of fear of losing relationships. You see, love without truth is actually only self-love. This happens when you see a dangerous flaw in someone, but you you won't say anything. Your your lack of truth is not loving. It's self-centered love. You're you're afraid if you approach that difficulty, what's going to happen? They might walk away. You see, the loving side is beautiful, but your self-love it might let a brother destroy his family forever. Is that loving? Love without truth will never accomplish love. If someone is not okay, it is not loving to say they're fine. So some of us lean more toward a loving kind of place where we're more patient. That's easier for us, but we struggle to say what is real. Some of us are more truthful people. Like truthful people will struggle to be patient and loving with people. Their danger is to point out truth for their own self-promotion. You won't be patient and help. You just love to be right. The danger is you will use people's wrongness and pointing out where they fail to promote yourself. You leave bodies in the wake of your life and you don't really care as long as you're accurate. Some of us naturally lean that way. And it's not that the truth is wrong. It's that we need truth and love. Like the danger is your self-loving pride is hurting the community of God for the sake of you, to uplift you. Truth without love will never accomplish truth. Truth without love will only slam the door and embitter people's hearts toward the truth. It makes a stumbling block for faith. All of us, because of this childlike self-centeredness still living in us, keeps us from looking where we're not strong to be in this balanced approach that we would be long-suffering with people, humble and patient, but not afraid to speak the truth. So what is our hope? 
What, what, what is the hope? See, on, on one side, uh, we, we have a bunch of like weenie loving Christians who won't tell others when, when they're in danger. But on the other side, we have a bunch of like jerk know-it-all Christians who crush people just to be right. Like what is our hope? Verse 8, verse 8, verse 9 and 10. When Paul quotes Deuteronomy and he kind of just roughly quotes it and then teaches on it. He puts in the incarnation. Jesus came down. Jesus didn't stay up just to yell truth out to everyone of you're doing it wrong. Jesus came down. Jesus got with people who were incredibly immature, people who stepped on his toe, people who betrayed him and walked away. He got really, really close. But he didn't. He didn't shy away from speaking the truth. All through the scriptures, like he wouldn't step away and not say what's real, but he also had an air about him that he could be with someone and not crush them with the truth. The gospel is how we balance truth and love. Jesus came in truth. Jesus had to die on the cross because of the truth about us. You and I were far worse than we think. Our sin problem was far deeper than we knew. Only the death of God could cover it. No amount of self-improvement could fix it. That's hard truth. But Jesus came in love. Jesus chose to die on the cross because of his love. You are loved despite being so self-absorbed and inconsistent. Jesus came speaking the truth in love, and it changes everything. And see, when, when you believe the truth of the gospel, you truthful people out there, you'll be able to love because you don't need to elevate yourself at the expense of others. When, when you believe the truth of the gospel, you, you loving people out there, you'll be able to say something hard because you won't have to fear losing their affection because you have the affection of Jesus and it is stable and it is concrete. I mean, just leave them with some questions. Do you have this animating life of God in you? If you do, it's going to start to come out. Like It won't leave immaturity. You can't just make peace with immaturity. The life of God in you, the Holy Spirit of God, is turning over rocks in your soul to make you connect deeper with the head who is Christ. You know, some questions that you could ask, like, are you becoming happier, more content, more patient and more accepting of others. Am I more like that now than I was six months ago? And if you're really brave, you can invite someone else to answer that question for you. Do, do you perceive me as someone who is happier and more content and more patient and accepting of others now than I was six months ago? Like that speaking the truth in love. You know that the elements of communion, they also preach truth and love. On one side, the torn bread and the torn wine, it points me to truth. God had to die to get me to His Father's table. But they also point me to love. All who accept the call are invited in. 
all can come. If you want Jesus, you're invited. The only fence that is ever around the elements of communion is faith in Jesus. Jesus came in truth and love, and that is the only thing that can really change us. Pray with me. Jesus, in, in thinking about a season that it can bring frustration and fear and worry, it's so easy for us to look at those circumstances and see them as the problem. But Lord, they are not the cause of my problem or the cause of my sin. They are the occasion of my sin. And so, Father, Lord, you speak with such confidence that if we walk in friendship, if we walk in friendship with one another and we extend patience and humility to one another, you speak with such confidence that if we speak with truth and love, that we walk in and we know that sometimes there's a dangerous flaw and we need to speak to it, that if we have courage, that the Holy Spirit can do great things with that to bring unity. But, Lord, sometimes the call is just to be still to be with someone in their suffering, to be with them. Father, without the Spirit of God, without the example of Jesus, without the animating life of God in us, we'll never get that right. Lord, we need help. In Jesus' name, amen. Free City, leaving with this thought. To Him who loves us, and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God. And Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I can't wait to see you.